We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 23, beginning with verse 37 and reading through 24, verse 2, as we continue our series through Matthew. We are in what is known as the fifth or the last of five uh, discourses, five long speeches of Jesus uh, that Matthew uses to sort of give structure to his gospel account. This is the final one. The first one, as we were reminded last week, is the well-known Sermon on the Mount, which begins famously with the blessings. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. This one, as we noted, uh, begins with the famous woes. Woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe, woe. We'll be picking up this theme as we pick up verse 37 in which we listen as Jesus laments over Jerusalem and as we move into verse chapter 24 in which Jesus and the disciples have a brief exchange about the temple. It's important that we understand that Matthew wants us to know that the good news of God's great love in the person and work of Jesus is that the triune God himself is so committed to the flourishing of his world and us in it that he will stop at nothing. He will even go so far as to dismantle the world, dismantle us, dismantle our lives in the world as we know it, and love them in order to reassemble them according to his power, according to his wisdom, and according to his design, so that we may actually be the men and women we were designed to be, living as we were designed to live in the world that we were designed to live in. The fact is that the end of the world as we know it is, in fact, good news because it means the beginning of the world for which we long, for which we dream, a world of justice and mercy and peace, a world that scripture describes as shalom, a world of flourishing. So read with me Matthew chapter 23, beginning with verse 37. We'll read through 24, verse 2. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often... Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So then Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And he answered to them, you see all these, don't you? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, 
There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I know it doesn't sound like it at first, but brothers and sisters, that's good news. That's good news to you and to me, even today. So let us go to him in prayer. So Father, we come to this point in this hour and this day that you have set aside in this place to this your word. A word with which so many of us are very familiar. And a word with which many of us are not familiar. But whether familiar or not, a word for which we need the help of your spirit to understand. Because some of us are so familiar with it that we turn off thinking that we understand it. And those of us who are not familiar with it turn it off because it seems too strange and too complicated. So grant to us your spirit that we may see wonderful things here in your word. We may understand them. We may be changed by them. Feed us indeed upon the truth of your word in Jesus Christ and protect us from error. For we pray it in Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you just noticed, but as you pulled out the hymn book, the hymn that we just sang was actually penned um, by a man by the name of Ed Clowney, who died just recently, actually, several uh, years ago. But he wrote it in 1985. Now, those of us who grew up in the 80s um, probably understand why he kept calling out for the compassion of Jesus. And any of you who are not familiar, perhaps are too young to remember the 80s, but perhaps you've seen the styles that were common in the 80s, would also understand why he might cry out for compassion. It's also the time when there was a hit song by the rock band R.E.M., which some of you have recognized from the title of the sermon. It's the end of the world as we know it. It became a hit in the late 80s, 1987. And it was inspired by Dylan's equal, um, Bob Dylan's equally interesting um, hymn, perhaps song, entitled Subterranean Homesick Blues. Isn't that a great title? Subterranean Homesick Blues. I actually debated maybe about whether or not I should name, title the sermon that, Subterranean Homesick Blues. But the REM hit also inspired Billy Joel's hit from a year or so later, We Didn't Start the Fire, the refrain of which goes something like this, We Didn't Start the Fire. No, we didn't start the fire, but we have to fight it. It was a crazy decade. It was, had been a crazy several decades. There was a sense that indeed the world was falling apart. There were a number of songs that came out at the time which just went through a rabid recitation of the world's headlines. And it felt like things were spinning apart, that the middle was not holding there was an apocalyptic sense that the world as we knew it 
was crumbling around us. It's a sense that seems, in fact, to haunt and harass every generation. It's not unique to us. It wasn't unique to those of us who grew up in the 80s. It's not unique to those of us who are living today. It's not unique to those of us who are living in North America. The fact is, we live in a fallen world, and every generation is painfully aware of that. It feels like we're on the verge of the end of the world as we know it. And even that expression in, in our uh, common um, popular language carries with it a sense of foreboding. It's the end of the world as we know it. At the root of it is the assumption that the world as we know it is the good, is the best thing going since the dawn of world history, is the best thing going since human history. And there, the note is calling it the end of the world as we know it is the end of this glorious sense of accomplishment. What a waste we feel like. And if the world as we know it is taken out, then indeed all existence ceases. All reality comes to a screeching halt. The end of the world as we know it carries with it this deep sense of foreboding and fear. And what's true on a broader cultural sense or a broader socio-political sense is also true on, the indiv on our individual level, isn't it? We feel with any given day that we're about to lose what we have worked so hard to accomplish. And some of us feel like I work and I work and I work and it just evaporates from my hands and it just goes out the window. It's the end of my life as I know it. I've invested far too much to lose it all now. And so we become paralyzed in fear, perhaps in anger, perhaps in panic. I want you to lay hold of that sense of foreboding that is carried in the language of that REM song in the title of the sermon, The End of the World as We Know It. Because it is impossible for us to comprehend what is going on in these passages until we comprehend the dimensions of Jesus' lament. Until we understand the cosmic dimensions, the cosmic implications of his lament here, we will not get what is happening. As he looks at the temple, as he looks at Jerusalem, we must remember, we must understand a sort of biblical framework within which Jesus himself is operating here in Matthew. As he walks into the temple, we have to 
try as we as hard as we can to understand what does it mean that Jesus himself was walking into Jerusalem, that Jesus himself was walking into the temple. What did Jesus comprehend about the significance of this place and of this people and of this activity? That is, we need a biblical cosmology. Not cosmetology, cosmology. We need a biblical vision of the cosmos. We need a biblical vision of how God himself has has structured the cosmos, how God himself has designed the cosmos to work. What do you mean, cosmos? Forgive me. What do you mean by this cosmos language? We don't think about cosmos very much, do we? We don't think about cosmological language. And so just let me introduce you. We use it every day, but we just don't name it like that. For example, in your headlines, you read something like this. Washington declared today such and such. Well, it doesn't actually mean that a city actually made a declaration. It actually means that all the political, military, and social, economic power of Washington was brought to bear and gave expression to a decision and made that decision known and that that decision has profound and real and immediate consequences for the world, not just for this nation, but for all nations. Because you see, Washington is not just a city on the East Coast of the United States. Washington is not merely a city that, op- that occupies a particular piece of real estate on the East Coast. Rather, Washington represents a power in this world. Another example. We speak about the White House declared today, the White House decided today, the White House, the White House. Well, it's not as though that white building on Pennsylvania Avenue actually has a mouth that spoke. What we mean is the power that is represented by that building. It is a power that has worldwide reach and implications. We say, for example, Wall Street declared today... And what we are referring to is not the particular people that walk to and fro on Wall Street. What we're talking about is an economic superpower. Or we say Hollywood this or Hollywood that. What we're talking about is not a particular city, not particular people. What we're talking about is, is a spirit, the spirit of Hollywood. A spirit that has worldwide reach. And influence. And so when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, when Jesus speaks about the temple, he is speaking not about a particular city and a particular piece of real estate, although it is certainly that also. He's not speaking about a particular building or even a particular complex of buildings in that city. 
He's speaking in cosmological terms. He's speaking about a city that has cosmological influence. That has power that reaches not only around the world, but throughout the cosmos and throughout time. Jerusalem, the White House, Wall Street, the Temple, Hollywood. These are more than cities, but they represent and embody particular and distinctive ideas about the world and how it works and how it is to work and who is valuable, who is not valuable in that structure of things. Jerusalem and the Temple embody and live out this value system. They make visible what the Bible calls the spirit of the age, so to speak. Jerusalem, the city of God and its citizenship, the temple, the dwelling of God, and all those activities by which God dwells with his people. Jerusalem and the temple function in this way in the Jewish mind. So start with me in chapter 24. So Jesus has been in the temple. We're in Holy Week in terms of the story of Matthew. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, people have been saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus goes to the temple. He cleanses the temple. And all of these things are going on around and at the temple. And then verse, chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away. Now, on one hand, that just moves the narrative forward. So that's narrative action. But actually, we're not going to get into it now. Part of what Matthew is doing there is echoing and drawing on uh, the visions of Ezekiel in which he saw the glory departing. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And as they're walking away, the disciples point out to him the buildings The temple was known throughout the world as one of the most glorious pieces of architecture. It was world famous. People would make trips to see the temple because it was glorious. And it was right. If you have the opportunity, you're there to actually see the temple and actually recognize it and say, wow, that is a, a beautiful thing. Stunning. How do they do it? And that's what the disciples are doing. They point out to him the buildings of the temple. And they say to him, Wow, Jesus, isn't that beautiful? And so Jesus, look, verse 2. Yeah, do you, do you see what you're seeing? Do you see what you're seeing? going to be destroyed. Simply an inconceivable statement. So you can imagine the disciples saying, oh, that's a strange statement. Jesus, we love you. We just, well, I don't understand why you're speaking such nonsense. We just don't understand you. Because it was simply inconceivable. It was simply incomprehensible to the disciples 
to think or to imagine that the temple would ever, 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 ever disappear. Because it was far too grand, far too glorious. And Jesus says, you see this? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. If the disciples had understood what Jesus was saying, it would have absolutely terrified them. Because they would have recognized that Jesus is saying it's the end of the temple as you know it. And that for them would be terrifying. What would be involved in such a thing? And that's what we're going to get get into in the coming weeks. You see, because the temple had come to represent in the Jewish mind the beating heart of salvation, the beating heart of God's plan, the beating heart of God's promises. The temple was the beating heart of the restoration of all things. It was the beating heart of what the, what the Jews understood to be comprehensive flourishing of all things, what they called shalom, the word that is most often translated peace. You see, the temple represented God putting together all things, putting all things right, putting all things in their right place, putting all things in their right relation, putting all things to their right purpose. Because, you see, the temple was the place and the way that the Father would provide a way for a holy God to enjoy unhindered fellowship with a profoundly sinful people. The temple was the embodiment of God's promised salvation. You can begin to understand the grief involved in Jesus looking at the scribes and Pharisees who were responsible for the temple activities and realizing that they didn't know him. They were in the dwelling place of God and they were strangers to God. That's the great tragedy of what the temple had become. Because as we see in the woes to the Pharisees, the temple had followed in the ways of Adam and Eve. It had followed in the ways of Cain. It had followed in the ways of the Tower of Babel. It had followed in the ways of Gomer, Hosea's prostitute wife. It had followed in the ways of all human religion and religiosity. The temple had become a business, an industry for leveraging from God the blessings of God for my own purposes and for my own glory. It had become a way of appeasing the Father, of appeasing God, of seizing and securing from Him the riches of His blessings for our purposes. It's the way of the Pharisees. It's the natural way of our heart. It's it's the natural bent of our heart. 
It's the way of woe. It's the way that we so naturally pursue, but it is the way that leads to death. As Jesus looked at the temple, he was saying to his disciples, you see it. It looks great, but it's the way of woe. Now, the question that arises is, what's, what are the clearest indicators in my own heart that my heart is defaulting to this ever so natural tendency? Well, in my own heart, I find myself embarrassed and shocked, actually, even, by the way I respond when I don't get my way. By the way, I respond when someone else gets in my way or frustrates my way. Because the way I respond reveals what I believed all of my activity to be about. How do I respond when my day doesn't go according to plan? And I can tell you, you can ask my wife and my children, and they will tell you how I respond when my day doesn't go according to plan, but they're sworn to secrecy, so they won't be able to answer you. When our jobs, our careers don't develop as we have planned, our kids don't turn out like we prayed, how do we respond when those promising relationships and those promising opportunities don't unfold the way we want? The way we respond reveals that our heart has defaulted to this natural tendency to seize from God his promised blessings for our own purposes. But you see, the temple is the heartbeat of, of, that, of that salvation. Jerusalem is the sphere. Jerusalem comes to embody the scope and the sphere of that salvation. The every cubic inch of that salvation. If the temple was the beating heart, the temple was the beating heart of Jerusalem that gave shape and that gave substance and gave direction to the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem, to all of the political, economic, social, military, day-to-day -day buying and selling activity of Jerusalem. The temple... The rhythms of the temple and the values of the temple, the priorities of the temple, beset the pace and shaped the rhythms and the values and the priorities of life in Jerusalem in every cubic inch. Every relationship, every responsibility, every activity. What happens in the temple, you see, by design was to infect the rest of Jerusalem for good. But as we see in the lament, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, why didn't he say, oh, Pharisees, oh, Pharisees? Because the cancer of the Pharisees that was leading them on the way to woe had actually infected all of Jerusalem and had been leading Jerusalem on the way of woe, quite happily, we might add, quite contentedly, quite comfortably, 
And so Jesus weeps for Jerusalem because what is happening in the temple has actually overflowed and was infecting the entire city. And sadly, in the biblical vision of the way the cosmos is designed and worked, what happens in Jerusalem sadly does not stay in Jerusalem. But it overflows and infects all of Israel in every cubic inch of Israel's life. And by design, and according to a biblical understanding of the cosmos, what happens in Israel flows throughout and poisons the nations and the world and the cosmos. You see, the theme of Jerusalem and the temple is the theme of Eden. It's the dwelling place of God together with his people. And Jerusalem had, fo- had followed in the way, and the temple had followed in the way, and the Pharisees had followed in the way of Adam and Eve, our forefathers before us. Seeking to live in this world according to our own design, for our own purposes, for our own glory. And not to the praise and glory of the one who created all things, sustains all things, redeems all things. You see, Jerusalem is far more than a city. Jerusalem is Zion. Jerusalem is the dwelling of God's majesty. Jerusalem was to be that city on a hill, a light for the nations, life for the world. But it had become, in fact, a city of death. Even while giving lip service to the praises of God, that is the great tragedy. The great tragedy of the temple is that it infects all of Jerusalem. The great tragedy of Jerusalem is that it infects all of Israel. The great tragedy of Israel is that it infects all of us. 2,000 years later, halfway around the world. But I have good news for you. Because that's the world as we know it. And Jesus says... See, verse 38 of chapter 23, your house is left to you desolate because you see there will not be left here a stone upon another. There's great debate about whether this language of house refers to the temple itself. Many commentators go that route. Or does it refer rather to the legacy, using house in the, in the term, in sense of legacy of Israel, which I think is also true. See, your name, your legacy has been made desolate. Your, your house, the temple, has been emptied of its glory. Jesus left the temple and was going away. Indeed, the temple itself will no longer be here. That's good news. Because the way of the world as we know it is the way of woe. It's the way of death. It is the world that has structured itself for itself and for its own destruction. 
It's the world as we know it. How is that possibly good news? Well, the hint is there at the end of chapter 23. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, the name of the Lord is the name that was promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. I will grant to you a name. I will grant to you a great name. It's the name of the Lord. You see, Jerusalem was built and the temple was built because it was the glory of the name. It was the dwelling place of the name of God's glory. And so that's the whole point of the Shekinahs when the tabernacle was completed and when the temple was completed. The glory of the Lord descended. In Exodus chapter 34, we read that the glory of the Lord is the glory of his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, loving, forgiving, just, and holy. But it's not simply the name, it's the one or he who comes in that name. The one who bears that name. Not merely as the messenger of that name, but the one whose name is that name. The name, the Lord's salvation, Yeshua, Jesus. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was their great hope. The great hope of Israel that they sang about as they walked to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover was this is the year that the blessed one would come. The one who would establish the blessing, the promised blessing of God's shalom. The one who would make shalom upon the earth. The great promised peacemaker. You see, that language of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is not merely the language that we hear on Palm Sunday. It's the language that gave expression to the great Jewish hope that all things would be made new. And Jesus says here, I tell you, you will not see me again. You will not perceive me. You will not recognize me until you recognize that I am the one who comes to make peace upon the earth as it is in heaven. This is the one who is the great peacemaker. This is the one who is the great restorer of the breach. This is the one who restores to us what the locusts have destroyed. This is the one who makes all things new. This is the one by whom alone the blessing flows as far as the curse is found. It is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The one who ushers in this era of shalom. You see, when he comes, he destroys this temple and he replaces it with a new dwelling place of the peacemaking God. Wouldn't it be cool if you could see that new dwelling place on earth as it is in heaven? Look at one another. Because this is exactly what Peter said. 
You yourselves were once dead, and now you have been quarried and made living stones. And you are being bound together into a temple upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles, the dwelling place of God. That's what it means that we are shalom makers. We are his shalom makers. We are his peacemakers. We are his new temple, his new dwelling place. It's good news that the world as we know it is coming to an end. Because it's better news that the world for which we long is being fashioned even as we worship. Even as we love one another. Even as we love our neighbor. Even as we love our enemy. You begin to understand now, don't you? We exist as those by whom Jesus is building the world to come. We exist while the world as we know it is coming to its end, coming to its own destruction. We exist because King Jesus is building his new world, his world of peace, his world of justice, his world of mercy. Brothers and sisters, This is why we open our hearts and homes to welcome one another and embrace our neighbor and strangers and even our enemies into our lives. Because this is who King Jesus is. This is the world that he's making. This is why doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly together with our Lord is so indispensable because this is who King Jesus is. This is what he's doing. This is why loving the poor and the widow and the orphan is not an option for us. It's not as though, well, if that's your passion, you can do it. Because, brothers and sisters, that is the passion of our God's glory. It's not secondary. It's central to who we are. Because that's who Jesus is. It's not a matter of whether or not we have time. It's not a matter of whether or not it's convenient for us. This is who we are because this is who Jesus is. And this is the world he is making. This is why a job well done and done beautifully is not just a matter of personal pride, but a matter of displaying the glory of God's peacemaking love. So... Many of you live in St. Elmo, and you know that St. Elmo is uh, one of the hottest real estate markets here in the Chattanooga area. And so every once in a while you go through, you see new construction, you see old construction, and, um, and there's this house that I saw, and it was for sale, and I thought, wow, given the nature of that house, I could probably pick it up for about $50,000, and it was on this tiny little piece of property, and it was, it was barely hanging on. I think it was held together by tuck tape, and then I saw this for sale sign. I thought, dude, that's great, and then I heard that it was sold, and then I watched it get bulldozed. I heard that the house went for $250,000 and it was bulldozed. (laughs) 
and then they replaced it. Why, why would somebody do that? Because the house, as good as it might have looked from the outside, was rotten on the inside. And the great benefit, the great glory, is to bulldoze it and to replace it with something new. Some of you know that some of you have hobbies, even in our own congregation, of taking that which is discarded and apparently worthless and redoing it to make it new and valuable as a place of glory in the middle of our life. You see, that is a reflection of our God's glory. He takes that which has been rejected and he says, I'm going to make that a part of my temple, my dwelling place, my people. So, Father, we come because you are the living God and we are your people, stunned.